We're continuing going through the book of James together this morning. This morning we'll be in James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and then going all the way to chapter 5, stopping in verse 6. And boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin there. You have your own translation and a place you can ask us questions. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Now, Father God, we do thank you that all of our hope, all of our peace is in the blood of Jesus. That we rest not in the good that we have done to outweigh the bad, but we rest in the blood of Jesus. Father, we ask that as we come to your word now today, that you would help us to know more of that message of your gospel. That we would be better at applying it in our lives and living it out how we pray, Lord, that you would do this by your grace, that you would change us and make us more like Christ. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far, James has been challenging the status quo, we could say, of, of Christianity, of our Christian life. We saw last week, at the beginning of chapter 4, that James challenged us to be all in, to be a doer of the word, one who has both faith and works wedded together into an authentic Christianity. This is a total life change. This is a total lifestyle. It could be, as our culture says, James challenges us to identify as a Christian, that this is who we are. And just as a side, by the way, a great way to talk to non-believers nowadays is to say something along the lines of, I identify as a Christian. That is language that people understand and get and can start a very good conversation. You should try it. I would love to know how it goes. So anyway, this passage earlier in chapter 4, God promises to give us grace. He, He promises that to those who come to Him for identity, He will then exalt because of their humility. That He Himself becomes our identity. That we are identified as God's children. He exalts us when we submit to Him. This passage today is going to show us how we struggle to live in that reality, the reality of submitting to God in humility and Him then exalting us. That's harder than it sounds for us to do, that submission part we're not very good at. So I want us to see how in our culture we struggle to live in this reality. I want you to think in terms of your cultural background and and your kind of default settings. I've used this before, but every once in a while something comes out in our culture that is so profound and so popular that it really just grasps a cultural idea. So I want, I want to use this picture, and, and those of you here, young ladies, little girls in the audience, please control yourself. I want to throw a picture up here real quick to remind us of where we've been. So if you remember this, we have a picture? Not yet. There we go. Okay. So um, remember this movie? Remember this? This was actually a story that's been around for hundreds of years. Elsa was the villain in the story. They change it to make her instead of a villain to make her a tragic figure, and it's one of the most popular animated films of all time. And she has this song that you heard all the time, and it just resonated with our culture because it grabbed what our culture really believes. In the chorus, I'm not going to sing it, but you know it. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. See, there's nothing external to you that can limit you. You name yourself. You determine what's best for you. This is the culture we live in. And James addresses this exact 
culture? What does it look like when that culture comes to church? That's what this passage is about today. What does it look like when that idea, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, I identify as this, and you don't get to tell me otherwise. What happens when we bring that into church? That's what this is about. So with that in mind, let's look together. James chapter 4, starting in verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. This is God's Word. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth with luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. So one of the big themes we've been looking at to help us understand James has been church monsters. Now, for those of you who haven't been here for a while, what? Yes, we've been talking about monsters. That this idea that authentic, real Christianity is a wedding of faith and works, belief and action come together in real Christianity. But often in the church, we struggle to live that way. We can be monsters. We're a mix of zombies and we're a mix of ghosts. Faith without works. Nothing tangible about our beliefs. Just this ideas that we never actually live out. That makes us ghosts. We, ha- we know the right things, but we don't live the right things. It's as if we have no bodies. Works, on the other hand, all this stuff without actual right beliefs is someone who's dead inside. It's a zombie. So faith without works makes you a ghost. Works without faith makes you a zombie. And in our candid moments, we recognize that we have been both of those things in the life of the church. James comes along and says, don't be either. Instead, be a doer of the word. Live out this reality. Be all in. Unite faith with works. And we can only do that in the gospel where we are empowered by God's grace to be truly human, living out what we say we believe. You see, when we're living out of the resources that God gives us in the gospel, we don't slip into being a zombie or to being a ghost then. And that gives us our idea where we're going to go to today. I want to give you kind of a main theme to kind of help hang all these other ideas on. Here's where we're going to go today. Our plans and our money show our inner monster unless we know who we are in the gospel. 
That's the question for us today. Who are we in the gospel? How do we identify ourselves? Because until the gospel heals us, we plan our life like zombies and we wallow in ghost money. So let's look at that. First, the zombie life. James jumps into this text and he points out the presumption of certain Christians he's directly addressing. He basically says, look, don't be so fast to think you can live your everyday life And make lots of plans without thinking about God. See, this idea assumes God's non-involvement in the real stuff of life. It's a dualistic view of Christianity that many of us probably still have. Or this idea that, well, spiritual is good and earthly is bad. You can tell we use the words worldly versus spiritual. You know, it's the idea that there's the real world of the spiritual, then there's a sinful world of earth. And so the more spiritual and misty and ethereal we are, the, the better the world is. And that's not a Christian view. That's Greek philosophy that comes into Christianity. But we live that. We have the spiritual versus practical idea. It's called, the technical term is called practical atheism. And it's rampant in the church. It's living and working as if God does not exist while confessing a belief in that God. In other words, it's a zombie life. Our actions show our true beliefs that we're actually the walking dead. We don't believe the truths we confess. We don't believe the gospel. We leave that stuff here and then week in and week out, Monday through Saturday. Well, that's, this is the real world. We've got to do the things we've got to do. We'll, come, we'll get that religious stuff later. Here's another way to think about it. Many of us, we treat God like 911. You don't want 911 calling you, right? Oh, we're just checking to make sure that you're living safely, not going to have any accidents. Have you put up all these? You don't want them calling to check on you, right? No, excuse me. When I, don't call me. When I need you, I'll call you. Leave me alone until then. And that's how a Christian in practical atheism lives. Oh, I believe in God. I believe all stuff, but I don't really need him right now, so we're just going to do this my way. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Praise God from... Okay. That's practical atheism. We say one thing, but our lives show a completely different one. See, and we do this because deep down, we want to be God. We don't really want him to be God. We want to be God. This is the original temptation offered to Adam and Eve. Eat the fruit and be like God. It goes back to our example of Elsa. We manufacture our own identity. That's our world. As Western culture has thrown off the content of its Christian base, It wants to keep the results of that Christian consensus without the foundation. And so everything gets flipped upside down. And so it resists claims to authority and truth. And so it forces people to turn inward for meaning. This is significant because I say it is. I identify as this even though I look like this because interior is real. I say I am this, therefore this is my identity. And if you Go against my identity, I will break you, sue you, put you out of business. See, that comes into the church, doesn't it? We see it in our culture and it comes into the church. And James looks at us with verse 14 and he says, Look, man, that pursuit doesn't bring you any peace. You can't look inside yourself for meaning because we are too insubstantial. 
He looks at us and says, look, compared to God, our lives are that morning mist that hovers over riverbank and is gone by 9 a.m. It's just gone. So what's the alternative? If, we can't, if our culture looks inside for meaning, if we're pressured to look inside, if we kind of default to looking inside for, for our meaning and identity, what's the alternative? James tells us. Look with me at verse 15. It says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I met a friend in college. Um, this is how sad my high school career was. I met my first black Christian friend in college, not in high school. And we were really good friends. And he used to pepper his speech with, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. Hey, man, you want to meet at Penland for lunch tomorrow? If the Lord wills. Is that yes? Do I write that down? If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And I appreciate what he's trying to do, but i got to tell you, I don't think James is here giving us a mantra. He's not saying, okay, you better make sure you pepper your speech with that. Or I have a friend who ends every email with DV. For the longest time, I thought it was like Darth Vader. What is that? And so I, 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 being the smart person I was, I Googled DV. And it turns out it's if the Lord wills in Latin. I'm like, dude, I teach Latin. I didn't even know that. Really? It's like Dolum Voltaire or something like that. Anyway, that's not what James is saying. Here's, here's what James is saying. I, I kind of need the Forrest Gump version of things to understand them sometimes. And so, boys and girls, let's look together, and maybe mom and dad can peek in. Let's look at your translation of verse 15. Here's, here's what James is trying to say. He says this. He says, you should live every day remembering that God is in charge of your life. That's what James is saying. He's not saying, just repeat after me, if the Lord wills. No, he's saying, live that way. Act as if your life is in the hands of, a God, of God who is in charge. Now, earlier in chapter 4, if you remember, God told us, or James told us to submit to God, to draw near to Him. And we said in the children's version that it's a picture of, James says, look, snuggle up to God and He'll hug you back. That's the lifestyle of an authentic living faith. That's what this verse is pointing out to us. He's saying, look, be who you say you are. Live your life remembering God is in charge. That's the lifestyle that's opposite of the zombie life. It's opposite of practical atheism. It's that, that acts as if God has very little to do with our lives. See, James is looking at a group of Christians who check their spirituality at the door. They spend their week walking around like a dead zombie inside. You can't tell they're Christians. They're just as cutthroat. They're just as competitive. They're just as irritable, just as angry as people who don't know Christ. And you see them in church. James tells us that such a life is really arrogance. It's based in the Elsa attitude. It's all about me. In case you think I'm being too harsh, look with me at what he says in verse 16. He says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See what James is getting at here. James is trying to help us to see the difference between adding something to your life versus selling out to a relationship. I want you to imagine with me a newly married man. They go on their honeymoon. It's great. They have a great time. They get back. It's their first day back from their honeymoon, their first real-life, real day together. They get ready, they go to work, they go to work. Now, this man, for the last three years as a bachelor, every day after work, he likes to go to this coffee shop. 
He stays there about an hour, drinks coffee, reads a book. He just kind of decompresses from his day, and then he goes home. So, after work, he goes. He's been there about 30 minutes. His phone rings, and he, hello, it's his wife. Where are you? He's, oh, I'm, I'm at the coffee shop. You know, I always do that. She's like, well, why didn't you come home? Why didn't you invite me? What's going on? See, he's not angry at his wife. He's not mad at his wife. He's still thinking like a bachelor, not a man living in an actual marriage relationship. It wasn't mean. It wasn't trying to, be, trying to get her. He didn't even think about her. This is just what he does. See, and that's what James says is going on in our lives with God when we live out the practical details of our lives with little or no thought about God. Christianity is just another club we belong to. So when I'm in Christianity, when, yeah, when I'm at the club, I, I do the rules, but I'm, I'm, I'm at work. I'm not at the club right now. It's just another addition to the resume of our lives, but it's not a relationship with the Creator. That's what James is saying. No, don't do that. That's not real Christianity. You see, the opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. It's ignoring and not caring about something. Practical atheism is ignoring. It's not caring about God. That's why it's evil. But James has a great solution for us. Look with me at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is one of those verses people love to pick out of context, don't they, and, and, and use it for something. And that's fine, but in, the, in context, it's incredibly profound. James basically says here, if you agree with what I just said and you don't do it, that's sin. He's specifically talking about, okay, the stuff I just said in verses 13 through 16, if you nod your head and get the Presbyterian grunt, mm, but then you don't do it, that's sin. And if we just dig a little bit deeper, he gives us this incredible positive view in here. In this verse, he doesn't use the usual word we would expect to find for right thing there. He actually literally says beautiful thing or make beautiful. It's a sin, James says, to know how to make beauty and not do it. Now, if you haven't been here for some of the rest of the James stuff, you're like, what? That sounds really strange. But if you've been here before, we've seen this. Remember verse, chapter 3, verse 13. Remember this? We got it for you. Remember, remember what he said? He said, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, literally in Greek, beautiful life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James has this theme that God is beautiful and Christians reflect his beauty to the world. And so if you ask James the question, what does it mean to be godly? James would say to be beautiful. Christians are to reflect the beauty that God is bringing about. And when we aren't reflecting that beauty, he now says in verse 17, we are sinning. What a positive way to think about that. What does God want you to do? He wants you to make your world beautiful. He wants you to take what he has said and say, you know what, I'm not going to live as if he doesn't matter the rest of the week. I'm not going to live as if, well, this is my Christian life and I keep it compartmentalized and I'm faithful, but then now that I'm out in the world, I've got to do everything. No, it's going to affect everything. I am going to be this person. I am going to identify as a Christian. And when I do, I'm showing God's beauty to the world. 
What an incredibly positive way to think about your life. But for those of us who are born again, most of the time, here's where verse 17 gets us. We know what we should do, right? We just don't want to. It's too hard or awkward in a given situation to identify as a Christian, and so we don't. And that's why James calls it sin. We live the zombie life by choice. We want to. We ignore God much of the time, James says, because we really don't believe in and rest in the gospel of his grace. And to help us see that, because James just keeps pushing, James just keeps challenging and pushing, to help us see that, he now switches to an area that gets all of us, the area of finances. We're going to call this ghost money. So zombies walk around without real faith, dead inside. Ghosts do life with belief beliefs that don't affect their life. It's faith without works. It's, it's, it's dead inside. And that's another kind of practical atheism. James starts out chapter 5 now basically saying, look, you guys with a lot of money, you should be sad because you've lived without thinking about God. Okay, time for caveats. He's talking to a specific group of people. This letter is addressed to specific people. He is not saying all the people in the world who have money. No, he's talking to specific people. He goes on to say that their wealth is rotten. Their wealth is moth-eaten. Their wealth is corroded are the three descriptions he used. These are all things that happen because of neglect. Let's remember who James is. James is the brother of Jesus. He was there to hear Jesus teach. And if you remember, we said this about a month ago, you, probably, you may not remember, James is written before any of the four Gospels. It's one of the earlier books in the New Testament. So James, knowing these things that Jesus said, that them, them being out in the church orally, but they haven't been written down yet, James is alluding here to a story they've heard Jesus talked about, the parable of the talents. Remember the parable of the talents? Real quick, a master's going out of town on a journey. He takes his three top servants. He gives a big chunk to one of them, a little smaller chunk to the next, and then a tiny chunk to the other ones. He says, you know what? Show me what you can do. And he leaves. First guy uses it, takes it, invests it, and gets him a big return. The guy's like, great! You're in charge of a whole bunch of stuff now. Gets a promotion. Second guy comes. He did the same thing. Fantastic! You get a promotion. Third guy comes and says, you're scary, and I don't really understand money, and so I buried it in the ground. But here, I gave it back. I didn't lose it. He goes, that's it? That's all you're going to do? You're fired. In fact, put him in jail. Do bad things to him. Put things in him. Not nice things. I mean, it's, it's a frightening story because the guy didn't lose any money. He was given a certain amount of money. He gave it back. And Jesus basically says, God doesn't want you wasting these things. It's where we get our word talent from. It was a weight of money. We use it for our own personal resources But it's legitimate to say God doesn't want you wasting your talents. And that's what James is saying here. The whole point is this. God gives resources to be used. James tells these people, Jesus wants you to use your money to make things beautiful. Coming right after verse 17, put these together in context. Use your money to make things beautiful. Instead, what does he tell us? Let's look at... Verse 3 here, the second half of verse 3, he says, You have laid up treasure in these last days. The word literally there for laid up is nice. It's actually, he says, you have hoarded treasure 
in these last days. Remember high school literature class? Remember Silas Marner? Remember that at all? Lived in squalor, was poor, supposedly, but he had all these bags of gold hidden. And when he was alone, he would basically bathe in this gold. Anybody remember this at all? Okay, well, how about this? I got a picture. Remember this one? How about, how about you know, duck tails? Woo-hoo, right? How about Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money vault? You guys remember that one? This is the heart of the hoarder that James is getting at here. Having this pile of resources brings you peace. It brings you happiness. Look how happy he is. Brings you security. It's your identity. I'm somebody because I've got this pile. Don't miss what James says here too. He says in these last days, the age of the church. When the New Testament says last days, it means the age of the church when Jesus Christ is reigning now as king, but it has not yet been fully realized. He's, and by saying that, he's saying hoarding resources is a contradiction of our theology. Generosity is the norm for the days when Jesus is building his church. God has given you resources to build his church to make the world more beautiful. See, our identity should be rooted in Christ who's building us. If our identity is not rooted in Christ, we hoard. We look to these things. See, in these last days, James would say, is the next phase in history that's coming is what? Heaven on earth. If these are the last days, then the new world is what's coming. And we are doers of the word. We are the poets who speak of that coming world to this world. Our lives are supposed to give a glimpse of that reality that's coming. We make our world beautiful today, verse 17 says, and hoarding contradicts that. Now, many of you are thinking right now, I know, dude, I wish watching over a pile of money was my temptation. Please give me that temptation, right? Look, it doesn't matter if you've got 400 bucks or if you've got 400,000 in the bank. We can all be hoarders in our hearts. In the name of thrift, of being responsible, we check our savings account balance because you can do that with internet banking. And as long as it's increasing, you feel good. You have peace. I have self-esteem. I've done it right. I get identity. It doesn't matter if it was 400 yesterday, it's 401 today. That's a heart attitude of hoarding. That's a financial idol just as much as the person who spends all this stuff to get material things. The hoarder goes to a pile of treasure for meaning and identity. Or how about another one? How about we overstressed, overscheduled suburbanites? What do we do? We love our leisure, so we hoard our time, don't we? It's harder and harder for us to find time to serve because we just don't have any time. But yet we sure do know what, what's going on with the plot of all of our favorite shows. That's just as much of an issue, hoarding your time as it is hoarding your money. See, it's about the heart. We owned a home in North Mississippi for 10 years. We only lived in that home for two and a half years. Yay. During the remaining seven and a half years, we could never scrape together enough savings for me to feel comfortable in case something went wrong with that house. I would fret. I would worry. 
I would feel like a loser and a failure. Other people are doing so much better than me financially. I don't have anything. What if the air conditioner goes out? I got nothing. What? Uh, okay, okay, calm down, calm down. See, I wasn't trusting God. My security, my peace were in my ability to make numbers in a bank computer go up. I never actually got cash. It was just numbers in a computer, right? And I was a pastor while I was doing that. I was a ghost pastor. I believed the gospel, but I didn't live that out in my heart and how I lived my life. I did not identify that. I identified as someone who has to hoard money to feel safe and secure, not who's resting in the arms of his father who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I wasn't trusting God to provide. I was a ghost. People can be ghosts. We can slip into practical atheism. Organizations can slip into practical atheism. I struggled this week over these next few words. I, I, I ask that you would take them as intended. I believe that the Holy Spirit is calling me to say this. As this church is in transition, it's a good time to ask hard questions. And I would encourage each of you to think in your heart on the sin of hoarding and what hoarding really means, and to pray for wisdom. Use the Scriptures here, verse 3. And then, as a favor to your next pastor, as a congregation, you need to have a frank and candid conversation about the finances of your church. Specifically, how does having a tremendously large amount of money enough to cover nine months of expenses of this church if giving went to zero. Sitting for 20 years in a fund to build a bigger room. How does that fit in with the sin of hoarding? See, it doesn't matter if it's a person. It doesn't matter if it's a church. The hoarder hurts the community. Riches are not to rot. Clothes should not be insect food. Gold and silver shouldn't corrode. Those things should wear out from use, not rust out from neglect. The hoarder denies the community the beauty that can come from the use of wealth. Instead of hoarding it, James says, use it for the community. And to show how serious this is, James ends this part of his letter with verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. See, they are selfishly hoarding. They are ghosts with their money. Their beliefs have no effect on how they live. And James says, all of that is just as disruptive to the kingdom of God as murder. And people are powerless to prevent it. But there's a better way. Instead of the zombie life, Instead of ghost money, we can live in gospel beauty. So what I want to do here is I have another slide here for you. I want to, I want to hold on to James 5.6. It should be 5.6. I'm sorry, I messed up on that slide. I want to hold on to 5.6. And I also want to hold on to 4.17 we looked at earlier. I think I have this all in one slide together. Look at these two verses together. Christians are called to do the beautiful or to create beauty. There's a higher purpose. The Christian life is not merely about our fulfillment, but it's about God changing the world through his people. That's what verse 17 is getting at there. 
And then in chapter 5, verse 6, again, I messed up on this slide. I apologize. That's 5, 6. We're shown this is serious. James says, sure, we all know murder is bad, but you know what? Hoarding and refusing to do our call to make things beautiful is just as bad. See, this verse, these, these ideas together, they both challenge us and condemn us. The heart of the Christian, we know this. We long to bring God's beauty to the world. But the monster inside of us rises up to stifle that desire. We've all felt it. And when that happens, we either live in this guilty sadness or a complete apathetic whatever. But James won't let religious people like us stay there. Verse, or chapter 5, verse 6, remember, was written to specific people. He nails a Jewish church right between the eyes. He calls this group of Jewish Christians Pharisees, is what he's saying here. He's basically saying in context, if you had been there, you would have killed Jesus too. James wasn't very pastoral sometimes. You see, their practical atheism is exactly the sort of external religious practice that leads to hurting others. And killing the Messiah is what he's saying. And our practical atheism is just as damaging. But there's good news too. Chapter 5, verse 6 is not only about the Jewish Christians. It points to Jesus Christ as well. Jesus was the righteous man who was killed without offering any resistance. He was killed by the wealthy religious people of the day. And by his death, we can be healed. Both zombies and ghosts, we must recognize our helplessness, which is what verse 17 helps us. We see, I, I can't help but sin. And we turn to Christ for grace in the gospel, and he offers it to us freely because he earned it. Oh, Christians, look into your heart right now. The, the monster of practical atheism is there. You know it's there. We live in the world of commerce often as if God doesn't see. We hoard our time and our resources. We ignore God. Be convicted of all that. But let that conviction lead you to repentance, not sadness and not apathy. Let it lead you to the cross. God saved you for a relationship. He wants your heart. And so by grace, he's not going to let you stay comfortable as a monster. By His grace, He will empower you to be beautiful and to make the world beautiful. No, repent. Let's, let's, let's repent of our apathy, of our practical atheism. Embrace Jesus in the gospel and live a beautiful life uniting faith and works, failing, repenting, and going back to the cross and failing. That's identifying as a Christian. And that brings beauty to your community by the gospel. Well, let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we don't, we don't live like this. Often weeks go by where we have forgotten to pray. And yet you love us anyway. You look at us as your beloved sons and daughters, even though we're running around scaring people as zombies and ghosts. Lord, would you draw us closer to you?
Would you bring us deep repentance that turns us to the cross? And by your grace, would you empower us to unite faith and works and to be beautiful and to make our community beautiful by reflecting your beauty? Lord, help us to identify as Christians. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?